Hello, it's Bernard Nomberg with the Nomberg Law Firm in Birmingham, Alabama. Each month, my brother and law partner, David, and I host a YouTube live monthly show called Work Comp Today. Work Comp Today addresses timely news and articles and information that deal with employers, employees, and independent contractors. Each month, we invite a friend and colleague from different parts of the country to join us in these discussions. We think that you'll enjoy this month's episode. We have Jim Aspell from Farmington, Connecticut as our guest. Jim is a highly knowledgeable attorney who deals with work comp, social security, bankruptcy, and personal injury matters. Thank you for tuning in to our monthly Work Comp Today podcast. If you enjoyed this episode of Work Comp Today, please consider subscribing, rating, and giving us a five-star review. This helps us to move up in the charts and be visible. Thank you for considering us at Work Comp Today. Okay, guys, I think we're now live on YouTube. I want to welcome everybody to our monthly Work Comp Today broadcast. Each month, Dave and I and a guest, a friend of ours, a, a fellow practitioner, we tackle the, the latest news that addresses uh, employers, employees, and independent contractors. And I'm so pleased to have our buddy Jim Aspell from Connecticut with us. Jim, how are you doing today, bud? I'm doing excellent, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's absolutely our pleasure. And I think we're now live on. How about we put that on mute? And uh, so I understand you have uh, some balmy 45 degrees today. Yeah, it's an absolutely spectacular late winter day up here in Connecticut. This is about as good as we get. Well, it's, uh, well, I can't believe, I think, David, did we hit 75 today? Low 70s today. It was a beautiful day. That was great. Crazy. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not going to hit, I don't know, for us, cold 30 or a little bit lower, but it's just, you never know. But anyway, we can talk about the weather or we can talk about something that people may actually want to hear about. And Let's that give is, the people what they want. They want to hear about work comp. That's right. That's right. And and Jim, I'd love for you to, to share a little bit about your background and your practice and things like that. So folks who, who are either watching this live uh, besides our mother, uh, we'll learn a little bit more about you, uh, maybe when they catch it on the replay later on. Yeah, and again, um, thank you guys both very much for having me on. I'm really excited for the opportunity. Um, so I've been practicing law in Connecticut since 1987, believe it or not. Um, I started out in a small firm uh, in downtown Hartford. They hired me on sort of as a utility infielder to do bankruptcies and all manner of things. I ended up sort of doing property damage collision case of Ravis Renicar, and that, that was sort of my niche. Somewhere along the line, we merged with a fellow who did uh, workers' comp defense. So being the low man on the totem pole, I became the associate that they schlepped all over the state. Mm -hmm. So for 19 years, uh, I defended workers' compensation cases oh, wow. on behalf of uh, insurance companies, municipalities, and TPAs. Mm -hmm. um, 2006, started my own firm, switched over to the other side and started wearing the white hat. Uh, I've been representing claimants in Connecticut now 
since 2006. Um, my office is in Farmington, but we serve, serve the whole state. Connecticut's not particularly large. Um, my practice, I think, is fairly closely aligned with what you guys do. So I've got probably 70% of the practice is claimants workers' compensation, do a fair amount of social security disability work, um, some chapter seven bankruptcy work. Those practice areas all seem to sort of mesh together pretty well. And then a smattering of PI cases. Um, but that's sort of it. I've kind of niched down and Encomp has been my specialty. There's, I'm actually board certified as a workers' comp specialist uh, by the Connecticut Bar Association. They started offering that, I think it was in 2001. So I was in the charter class of that and I've kept that up along the line. And I don't know if it's ever gotten me anything, but it's, uh, it's a nice thing to put on the, on the shingle anyways. Yeah, no, that does sound great. And Dave, that's, that's, that's the four areas that we cover. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I don't know how to spell bankruptcy, Jim, but I do know how to get in touch with Steve Altman in our office, who's a bankruptcy uh, expert with over 25 years experience in bankruptcy. Jim, I got a quick question for you. So you spent 19 years defending work comp claims, representing employers and insurance companies, and then you switched to representing injured workers. Explain or tell us how that how that experience helped you and how you use that experience today in helping injured workers. Um, I'm not sure how it is in Alabama, but in Connecticut, the workers comp bar is very, very small. There's, you know, you can count on two hands almost the people that do this on a regular basis. And almost like a family lawyer, your, your reputation becomes your stock and trade in this line of work up here. So from working on behalf of the insurance companies, I got to know attorneys on both sides of the V, got to know the workers' comp commissioners who are, you know, our equivalent of administrative law judges, which they have in most jurisdictions. And, you know, I think it just really gave me a nice balance, um, not to mention the fact you kind of know how the adjusters work um, the comp adjusters are also sort of a small group. So, uh, you know, I come across some of the adjusters that I worked with when I was doing defense work on behalf of my clients. And, you know, I think that helps out too. Thank you. Well, we are, um, Jim, one of the things I wanted to ask you before we dive into these articles was handling social security administrative law judge um, hearings during the pandemic has really been streamlined in that you don't have to leave your office. You don't go to the administrative law uh, buildings for those things. But my question to you is, are you finding that the decisions are coming out any faster or slower right now? What I'm noticing actually is that more decisions are being approved at the recon level, which, which has been highly unusual. Um, as far as the administrative law judges themselves getting the decisions out um, following the hearings. I'd say that they're, at least up here, they're pretty much sticking on par with what they were like before the pandemic. So there were some judges, you know, basically the ink was drying on the decision before the hearing ended. And then there were others, you know, three or four months down the road, you'd have to wait to get the decision. So that much hasn't really changed, I wouldn't say. We, we found a real slowdown like everyone else a year ago or a little less than a year ago. But by August, September, October time period, we were getting decisions within a matter of days, if not a couple of weeks. And attorney's fees were being paid almost at the same time that the decisions were coming out. 
I don't know if that's going to last very much longer, but it was just something we noticed uh, as a real change. And then the other change is now, uh, and Dave doesn't do this kind of work, so this is kind of new to him, is the decision or the choice to have the telephonic hearings or the video conference hearings as opposed to what the traditionally would be in person. I really like it. I really, I don't like driving everywhere for these hearings. So this, that's one part uh, that I do have uh, I come to appreciate. I have too, and I found it's a far more efficient system. But where I'm, I'm really enjoying that, believe it or not, is in the workers' comp forum, because I think you guys were doing a lot of your hearings telephonically beforehand. We were doing everything in person, so I was literally doing forty thousand miles a year, and you know I've gone down to zero. Um, you know we do these on the phone, and I can I get a lot more done in the day than I used to. Yeah, uh, it's, David. How often were you servicing your car? And how many miles were you putting on as opposed to now? I think oh, I've had my car serviced once in the last year, twice, maybe. It's crazy. But anyway, yeah. let's, uh, guys, let's dive into some of these articles. And of course, it's our group of articles are, are heavy uh, with COVID related uh, legal topics. And it's just, we can't, we can't get away oh, from it. Incredible and it, why am I, boy, amateur hour around here. Um, we can't get away from it because it's it's what's going on. These cases, COVID-related claims, good or bad, right or wrong, for the employee or not, have largely replaced a good percentage of the traditional comp claims. And that's that's what leads us to this first article, truly a, a national article, uh, why so many COVID-19 workers' comp claims are being rejected. And Jim, I, I, I suspect your firm has probably had the similar experience that ours has this past year. You probably looked at many of these claims, but they're, they're not winnable or very easily to prove cases. So what did you gather from, from either this article or your experience dealing with these matters? Well, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, the COVID claims started coming in basically by the end of March. And I, I forget what the most recent statistic in Connecticut is, but out of the number of COVID-related claims that have been filed, I, I think the percentage that have actually been accepted is you know, negligible, maybe one or 2%. Um, they're all, the ones that are being paid are all being paid uh, on a without prejudice basis. Um, that's not to say, <clears throat> excuse me, that some of my clients aren't getting benefits, they are. But in none of them have they issued what we call a voluntary agreement, which means that they accept the case voluntarily. And, you know, I, I think that's to be expected. Um, number one, I don't think the insurance companies want to buy into this whole hog because they don't, nobody really knows what we're getting into long term um, in terms of future exposure for paying benefits and that kind of thing. And the other thing that jumped out at me when reading the article, it, it's sort of common sense. And I think this is kind of why insurance companies are having a hard time wrapping their heads around this. And at the end of the day, th this is really just another viral infection, you know, no different than the flu. I mean, obviously the virus is different, <clears throat> but in terms of how, how we look at it in the comp forum, it's a viral infection. So trying to force it into this peg and, and treating it as an occupational illness, which is at least how we're handling it in Connecticut, really doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, these insurance companies, I think, look at it and they're like, well, if we're gonna buy into this as an occupational illness, 
who's to say that we're not going to have to buy into influenza next year as an occupational illness? So I, I think there's a real uh, reticence on the part of the carriers to wade into this whole hog. I mean, I think things are being paid on a humanitarian basis, but not necessarily yeah. on a sound legal background. That makes sense. David, didn't we, and coincidentally, Dave, I don't know if you saw this, Mac is, is quoted in this article. They go over one of his, one of his cases uh, out of Colorado. Yeah. But we read an article this past week, Jim, and I can't put my fingers on it. Maybe David, you remember. There was an article where maybe it was a production company. I'm not sure. They had over 900 COVID claims and they denied, they just blanket denied all of them. Um, because I guess they're just afraid of the floodgates. Yeah, we have uh, uh, Malcolm Croslin was also interviewed as part of this article. Malcolm's from Charleston, South Carolina, president of uh, Will, and our friend Matt, Matt Babcock, who was a previous guest on uh, WorkComp today. They're both interviewed. And, I, you know, I think what we see with these COVID claims is an exposure and, and then a couple of weeks of feeling bad you know, maybe a couple of weeks of benefits and then they're back at work essentially. And the, and then, and then of course the extreme is those that are exposed and die shortly thereafter. It's, it's, a, it's a temporary claim for a couple of weeks and then there's death claims. Yeah. And I think that's, that, you know, that's one of the things this article talks about. And of course, you know, these States where the States that passed laws or executive orders, uh, 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 making it a presumption that they, that certain employees, were exposed at work, they don't have a fight on their hands because they're 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 presumed to have acquired the uh, uh, COVID nineteen at work, and so they're getting benefits more re easily than the states like Alabama, where there is no presumption, and most every claim is going to be denied, including death benefits. Well, and that's that's kind of that's going to lead us to the next article, and it's a case out of Kansas City, Missouri. Family says nurse died after contracting COVID-19 at work. And frankly, I think that that's, this is one of the few professions, the, the few, I guess they're, they're couched as frontline workers, or um, I think there's some other definitions for it or, or, or descriptions for it. This is probably one of the few professions where in a state where we don't have the presumption like Alabama doesn't, um, and most don't, that maybe the argument argument can be made. But the difference that I saw in this, I think there was an admission in here by the employer. You guys, did y'all read uh, this one to, to see that? Um, let me see if I can put my finger. It, yeah. yeah, I think I think that was the case, Dave. Or Bernard. Yeah, that they admitted in legal paperwork that she contracted the virus at work. So it's, I don't know, what did y'all take from this? I think they had an outbreak and then the uh, company, the employer didn't notify the workers. And uh, I, I read this one with great interest because we, we've spoken to a lot of people who've gotten COVID uh, and giving them some advice, but we haven't accepted or, 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 or uh, been hired on any cases. Um, and I haven't filed, we haven't filed any, but I'm investigating one right now for a woman who worked in a nursing home. And there was an outbreak at that nursing home and she was uh, 
came in regular contact with residents of the nursing home and she died within a month of the contraction and no one in her family had the virus before her. She was the first in her family to get it and then her family subsequently got it from her. So we're investigating that right now and we'll probably be filing a a case on behalf of her family for work comp death benefits in Alabama. So this this case is a, a very uh, very inter very interesting to me. And, and Jim, the, it it alleges in here that the employer and here's the cover up here here's the real heat that they failed the employer failed to inform their employees of a positive COVID test within the facility, thus placing the employees. In, in danger. Yeah. Is that, would that reach a standard in Connecticut that might be a provable case? It, it may be. I mean, first of all, we have the, um, the executive order and we do have the presumption up here. Um, and, you know, the vast majority of the cases that I've got are people in the nursing home professions or, or registered nurses. Mm -hmm. But in reading this, I think counsel took a, a different attack. If I'm reading this right, I, I think that he actually brought a civil claim as opposed to outside of the workers' compensation system, um, which I thought was very creative. Um, up here, that would probably be met with the exclusive remedy defense. But I, I think he actually brought a civil wrongful death suit. And, you know, assuming you can get over the causation problems like you would in any other civil case, I thought it was a very creative approach. Yeah, Dave, what would Alabama think about or say about the exclusive remedy dealing with that approach here. Yeah, I, that's not going to fly in Alabama. That's going to fall under work comp. And, and we've seen that. There's been a few cases filed nationally where people filed uh, civil claims as opposed to work comp claims. And I'm not sure that those are going to gain traction because, as you mentioned, Jim, the exclusive uh, remedy provision. It's essentially, you know, work comp is a defense to civil litigation, right? Yeah. It's uh, you get hurt at work, you get exposed to a virus at work, uh, then yeah, it's a work comp claim. Even if you pass away and your and your surviving uh, spouse or child brings that action, it's still going to fall under work comp because at its core, work comp is a is a defense to negligence cases. Right. Well, that, that that was the other thing that I thought was sort of creative with with counsel in this case was you know assuming that they're not accepting COVID as a as a compensable work related injury in in Kansas. You know, you bring a case in civil court, the likelihood of a settlement to recover monetary benefits is far greater than anything we see in the workers' comp form in Connecticut. So I think in terms of actually doing something on behalf of the family in terms of putting some remuneration in their pockets, I thought this was a very smart and a very creative way to go. And uh, I think it may work out for them. Well, it's, it, it certainly is. I want to keep an eye on that case to see how it, it pans out. But for those of you watching us live, or maybe you're going to catch us on the replay, I'm Bernard Nomberg with Nomberg Law Firm in Birmingham, Alabama. Brother Dave is my law partner, and we do this show, Work Comp Today, every month, either the last or the third, sometimes the fifth Thursday of the month, just depending on our schedules. We always bring a buddy on, a fellow practitioner from different parts of the country. And Jim Aspell from Connecticut is with us today. And we're so glad that he's making some time for us. And we're, we're just talking about the issues of the day, the cases that make the headlines that impact or affect employers, employees, and independent contractors. 
And Jim, I promised David for this episode, we would not bring up the gig economy workers or what does Malcolm call it, David? No, no, not Malcolm. Um, Roger calls it a different name. He does not like that term gig economy. We're not supposed to use that term. I know, I forgot. But in the last year and a half, Jim, that has, between that and COVID has dominated uh, the headlines in these these articles, but it, uh, it is, it's what, you know, it's what's hot. It's what's making news. So that's why we want to address those uh, each month when stuff comes up. But I want to go to the, to our next article, guys. Expansion of workers' comp for COVID-19 created narrow benefits in six states. And it goes, and I'll just, I'll address the first part of it. And it says at least 17 states, not Alabama, have passed laws or issued orders that expanded access to work comp benefits for employees of COVID-19. Uh, without looking further, was Connecticut part of the 17? No, we, um, it, we like I say, we have the, um, the presumption mm-hmm. and there's actually a bill that's currently been introduced in the legislature this year, mm-hmm. making it a presumption, at least for as long as the public health emergency continues to be declared in Connecticut. And interestingly, what the bill says is for any future public COVID health emergency that may be declared. So it's obviously prospective, um, but that hasn't been passed. So there's no law. Well, there, there, there will not be one in Alabama anytime soon. I can assure yeah. you of, of that. David does some, some work from time to time uh, dealing with legislation and, and task force for the work comp section of our bar and he is yet to come back with a smile on his face or to have good news in the last five years on these issues. We, we have the same problem. Yeah, uh, but it, it goes on to say that at least six of these states have carved out a niche. And Dave, I want you to pick it up from there if you can. Sure. So, you, you know, it talks about 17 states in some form or fashion, whether it's through legislation or executive order, have have provided a presumption to certain workers. And what, what's interesting here is it's been a, a modest uh, covering of these uh, in these 17 states. In other words, it's not every worker that's covered by these presumptions. It's a very small percentage. It's a modest percentage. While it's modest, it's better than nothing at all. As you mentioned, Bernard, it's better than what we have in Alabama. Was there anything of, of further significance in here, Jim, that you saw? No, I, I, you know, I, I think kind of broad. Yeah, I, th- I think it really kind of goes to my point that a lot of this is sort of you know feel-good legislation, and you know they're they're trying to come up with a balancing act. I think between doing something that's in service to the public without really hammering the business community. And uh, this is sort of the hybrid that it seems to be what's panning out. Well, yeah. what, uh, let's let's sidestep for a second for away from this article is how how I guess how well is the vaccine being received in Connecticut? Is it being widely dispersed and administered or are there there are issues uh, like I guess most states would be going through? Yeah, no, we're we're doing very well. I think we're number three, I think, in the country in terms of rollout in terms of number of percentage of population that's been um, been inoculated. The interesting thing is that just last week, the governor kind of threw a curveball, and 
we had been following the CDC guidelines in terms of the, the order for people getting, you know, being eligible for a vaccine. And at the end of last week, I think Friday, he dropped a bomb, turned that on the ear and on its ear and made it completely age related. So in other words, we're going in intervals of decades. So, you know, those people who are 60 and above are going to be eligible to start scheduling vaccines uh, March 1st, regardless of what line of work that they're in. Uh, they did carve out a special exception for teachers um, because the unions were really pushing for that. So, you know, if you're 25 or 30 and you're a teacher, you're going to be eligible in the next group that comes up. But in terms of other people, you know, people with diabetes, heart disease, cancer, all these other pre-existing conditions, a lot of them by virtue of their age have now been bumped down the list. And uh, th there's a bit of an uproar on it. Well, it seems, Dave, in Alabama, it's kind of a Game of Thrones mentality around <laughs> here. Um, I you, you said Connecticut is, is ranked number three or so. I think so. In, in that, I can assure you, again, we're not number one or number two, are we, Dave? I don't think so. No, no. I think we'd be, uh, we might have a three in ours, but it would be uh, above 30, you know, like 39. <laughs> no, I, don't, I don't think we're top three. No, but I was encouraged to see, assuming this does come to fruition, that I think Walmarts and maybe Targets or maybe just Walmarts are going to be administering them in mass, I think, in the next couple of weeks nationwide. So I don't know how all that's going to work, but it um, I just hope there's some order to it that the public can live with. But I'm sure there's going to be problems uh, at some point or another. But it's not all uh, wonderful news in the work comp world in Connecticut, because now we have to, unfortunately, uh, focus on a corrections officer who has gone astray. So Jim, I don't know if this is part of your one of your cases, but Connecticut corrections officer charged with work comp fraud. And gosh, Dave, every other month, we have a case from different parts of the country where people may legitimately be hurt on the job and it may have a legitimate case, but they probably are not taking the advice of their counsel when it comes to certain things during the representation. So Jim, what do you take from this fellow over in West Hartford, Connecticut? It's my neighbor. So uh, fortunately, this this guy is not one of my clients. Um, and, you know, it, it's unusual to me in the fact that he was a state of Connecticut employee, which to me indicates that somebody must have tipped somebody off because in, in my experience with with state workers comp claims, very, very unusual for them to have any kind of surveillance where they would have caught something like this going on. Um, the other interesting thing is he was a corrections officer. And I, I think if I recall, he was injured responding to break up a fight in Connecticut. So under those circumstances, by statute, those guys are entitled to 100% salary continuation. So he was getting 100% of his pay you know, for this eight or nine months, he was supposedly, you know, TT. Meanwhile, running a Vietnamese restaurant up up in Massachusetts. And I, I think somebody just got wind of it. Um, by and large, these workers' comp fraud cases in Connecticut are very, very rare. I can probably count on, you know, one hand, uh, the number of cases that have popped up in the 30 plus years I've been doing this. And two of those are state employees. So I, wow. I do think somewhere along the line, Either it's a coworker or a neighbor who's, you know, they're seeing a, a, a hog getting slaughtered and they, they want to put an end to it. Yeah. I mean, it, this was pretty egregious. He got almost almost 50 grand 
yeah. and comp benefits from about a nine month period. And I guess he just couldn't leave well enough alone and had to, had to double dip. Right. Well, you know, we, we've all had those instances where on a Friday afternoon, <clears throat> the surveillance video lands on our desk mm -hmm. and somebody, one of our clients who's been collecting benefits has invariably been caught doing something in excess of their restrictions. But in terms of it actually being forwarded for a, uh, for a fraud prosecution, very, very rare in Connecticut. Yeah. It, uh, Dave, I, it, I don't know why I think this, but I've seen Maybe the state of Ohio has a pretty aggressive approach uh, to that, because uh, I think they, I want to say I've seen uh, more cases out of there over the last uh, year or so that we've been doing this. Yeah, um, I'll just add that for the, that is this is a takeaway for injured workers. If you are not working and you are receiving temporary total disability benefits or TTD, you cannot earn wages from another source. You can't have a side hustle like this guy. Uh, it violates the law and you'll be prosecuted. Um, when we do talk about these uh, employees with, uh, who are uh, been charged with work comp fraud, I always want to point out that year in and year out that the, the biggest offenders as far as the amount of money uh, that has been fraudulently uh, taken is committed by non-employees. That, that hundreds of millions of dollars each year uh, is fraudulently uh, taken uh, by employers, uh, by insurance companies, by TPAs, um, not by individuals like this gentleman. Um, it's, uh, there's a top 10 list produced every year by a lawyer out of North Carolina. He posted on his blog, and it's a fascinating read. Uh, year in, year out, the top 10 biggest fraud is caused by non-employees. And for those employees that do try to uh, tread the line, they probably should keep in mind that the gig economy is, is still considered work. That's exactly very true. Right. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. Right. Before we get to our final article uh, for this session, and of course, Amazon seems to creep into every one of our episodes, but that's okay. They're, they're doing some good around the country. Even a lot of their workers are being hurt. Jim, I want to do a, a little bit of a comparison with Connecticut law and procedure dealing with comp cases with, with Alabama. And Dave, I'll let you take the counterpoint to Jim's Connecticut. You share uh, with how Alabama handles it. Uh, Jim, we're, we're litigation-based. We're actually in circuit court if we need to try a case. How does Connecticut handle the resolution of cases uh, that aren't, say, mediated, but actually have to go through an adversarial uh, resolution. Right. So we have a, um, a workers' compensation commission, and their, their job, they have the jurisdiction to oversee the Workers' Compensation Act. So there's eight district offices across the state staffed by, I think it's 14 or 15 commissioners who, as I said earlier, are our administrative law judges. So basically, they operate as the trial court uh, for any litigated workers' compensation matter. Uh, they have original jurisdiction. We have our own Connecticut, uh, they call it the Compensation Review Board, and that's the intermediate appellate body um, having appellate jurisdiction over comp decisions. Um, if you're not happy with the result that you get from a CRB decision, uh, then you can appeal to the state appellate court and then ultimately to the state Supreme Court after that. 
But by and large, the workers' comp system is a self-contained one. Dave, why don't you share yeah. how Alabama resolves its, its matter? Sure. In Alabama, uh, if we have a dispute on a work comp matter, we can go straight to uh, the trial court level. We do not have an administrative law judge or administrative law body to go to. So our disputes are filed in court as complaints. And the same judge that would decide a work comp dispute could also hear a multi-million dollar uh, medical malpractice case or a uh, capital murder case. So our, we're, we go to disputes and they're decided by circuit court judges. Uh, they are uh, non-jury trials. And then uh, those, if there's an appeal, it's taken up to the Alabama Court of Civil Appeals for review. And I, th I think I may have mentioned this, I'm not sure, but we're the only state where you go straight to the uh, trial court level that there is no administrative law judge here in Alabama for work comp. Yeah, the uh, the amount of workers' comp knowledge at the uh, the superior court and above level in Connecticut is is basically zero. You know, as the, the comp guys come in there and they look at us like we just landed from Mars. They have, they have no. You could tell them TTD. They'd have no idea what I was talking about. Well, that's it's interesting that you say that, Dave. What's our experience with the circuit court judges and and work comp matters? Yeah, so it, 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 you got to know your judge, Jim. You know, some of these judges uh, practice law uh, and did some work comp, and so they're familiar with the basics. Some of them never touched a work comp file in their entire uh, career as a lawyer. And so you got to know your judge and, and, and make sure that uh, they know what TTD and MMI, you know, we start throwing around those, those acronyms and those words we're so familiar with, panels of four and all that. And so you got to make sure that uh, your judge is on the same page as you are. Right. Yeah. Sometimes you have to work a little harder in some of those judges educating <laughs> them than you do some of the judges who, who actually have done that type of, of work. But uh, well, guys, let's, let's, let's do one more comparison before we hit this, this New York article. Jim, when a, when an injured worker is not, satisfied with the medical care that they're getting from the approved work comp physician or a practitioner? What rights do they have through the system to continue with medical care, but it paid for through the system itself, as opposed to the employee having that responsibility of payment? So as in, as in so many things, it really kind of depends. But in the garden variety case, the, the statute provides that the injured worker can pick a physician or surgeon of their own choosing. And I think that includes chiropractors as well. So if, for example, your employer sends you down the street to Concentra uh, and you're not satisfied with that, uh, you do have the right, uh, frequently they'll come to us and we'll you know, get them a, a workers' comp private physician that's familiar with the system and somebody whose opinions we trust. So, you know, the, the employee always does have that option to pick, except in the case if there's a managed care plan. We see that in large employers, um, typically UPS, um, hospital chains, things of that nature. And to that, in those cases, the employer can pick a physician, but they do have to be in the managed care plan. So the employer does get a bit of a say uh, in, in who, who the doctor they're seeing is. Now, if you've made a, 
an election as to who your doctor is going to be, say you pick Dr. Smith and he's your guy on the voluntary agreement, you kind of have to live and die by your choice. It's, it's very, very unusual to get a change in treating physician. And a lot of times what happens is you know, they go through the process and you know, they have this injury and Dr. Smith gives them a 2%. And they're like, well, I, you know, I, I think I'm entitled to a 10%. I'm not happy with that. And, and by and large, if their own doctor gave them a rating or put them at MMI, they're stuck with it. So typically what we recommend is if you want to go get a second opinion on your own dime, and you can bring me that report or we can get that report to show to the commissioner that says, well, here's some sort of affirmative treatment that you might avail yourselves of that Dr. Smith hasn't thought of, then you've got at least a good faith effort to ask the commissioner to change the doctor. Uh, but it's it's very, very unusual after the fact for a change. Well, our, ours is nothing like that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll let Dave explain. We have two opportunities and only two opportunities to, to choose from a panel of provided physicians to switch your medical care through the system. So in Alabama, Jim, the employer selects the initial treating physician. Uh, they control the medical. They, they pay for it, but they control that initial treating physician. Um, if, the employee, if the employee is dissatisfied with that physician, then they do have the right to a panel of four doctors. And that's the only time they can voluntarily uh, switch unless that authorized treating physician orders surgery and then they're entitled, entitled to a panel of four surgeons. And that is it. Substantially <laughs> <laughs> yeah. different. Yeah, it is. It's, but we're a no-fault state, which gives, I guess, the, the employee some rights. But if the employer or the insurance carrier is going to pay 100% of the medical care in these types of claims that aren't being disputed, they, they have, in a manner of speaking, have that control. And gosh, that's, that's where half of my fights are. Uh, on behalf of our clients with the adjusters or the, the defense attorneys. Yeah, typically how we handle that is if the treating doctor opines that somebody needs surgery and the insurance company has a, a quarrel with that, then by statute, the insurance company can get a second opinion. They can get an IME. And you know, depending on whether that's a yay or nay, then the surgery is either a go or if the opinions are diverse, then what we have is what's called a commissioner's exam where the commissioner actually sends all of the medical evidence to a doctor that they appoint. And, you know, 99 times out of a hundred, the opinion of the commissioner's exam is the one that we're going to be stuck with going. Dave, that almost sounds like our version of utilization review. A, a little bit. Uh, interestingly, Jim, if the authorized treating physician in Alabama says you need surgery and it's related to the accident, then the insurance company can request an IME, but the employee does not have to go. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, a lot of injured workers don't know that if they're not represented and they go to that IME and that's not a good thing, but, but, the, but the employee doesn't have to participate in that IME because they already have an authorized treating physician. Yeah, here, if they, if they blow off the IME, they're severely jeopardizing the right to collect benefits. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it looks like, guys, the, city, the state of New York is a little mad at Amazon, probably for many other reasons, but for our purposes today, 
it's over worker safety. And it says they're claiming that the company failed to provide workers with a safe environment at two warehouses as COVID infections surged nationwide. I was a little surprised to see this, uh, this lawsuit or this uh, article, but I, I'm not upset by it. I'm glad somebody else is standing up for injured workers. Jim, did you take anything out of this uh, from this article? You know, my, my first thought was, you know, it's New York, who's surprised, really? And, right. you know, it's, it's, it's an action for civil penalties. I mean, typically in Connecticut, we see those if, you know, somebody, if, a, if the attorney general is bringing a claim against a chemical company or something like that. And, you know, the, the one that's going to benefit out of this at the end of the day is going to be the state of New York. It's not going to be the injured workers. Um, it, I, I don't know exactly what the time frame that they were alleging that you know, these conditions were taking place. But, you know, for, for so long, probably from March until the middle of the summer, everybody was scrambling, as I'm sure you guys were down there. We had a shortage of PPE. We had a shortage of masks. We had a shortage of, you know, every manner of things. You know, doctors were falling down exhausted. So to kind of lay all this on Amazon, you know, while I sympathize with the workers, I'm not sure particularly considering who the attorney general is in New York, I'm not sure to what degree this was grandstanding and, you know, to what extent it was really, you know, well-meaning. Well, it, I can remember, I guess it was probably late March when we were still in this shock and panic uh, mode nationwide, calling a buddy of ours saying we, we need some masks and we need some, you know, PPE. If we're gonna have people come to our office, we wanna have it on, on site just in case. And he says to me, don't tell anybody where you got this, you know, bring me cash. I'm like, holy smokes. But for a while, there really was a shortage of those, those items until the world, uh, you know, figured out how it was gonna keep going forward. But that's, and I'm wondering, and the reason why I bring that up, I'm wondering on some small level, um, is that, let's just assume that the state of New York has legitimate reasons to bring this. I'm sure they see a big pocketbook to maybe help out the state somehow, maybe some good PR, but maybe because of the state of the, the, the frazzled mental state of the world at the time, maybe maybe these workers truly were put in bad positions. But Dave, I don't know, if, did you get anything else out of the article or the, the, the real yeah. meeting behind this? Because I really think Jim had the nail on the head with it. Yeah, no, briefly, it, 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 most every month when we do this show, we're talking about Amazon. Well, why? Because they're one of the largest, most successful companies in the history of the world, yeah. uh, you know? And so as a result, they're in the crosshairs. Uh, for so much, for so much, mm -hmm. um, I'll say this: It's nice to see their attorney general uh, take this on. I can't imagine Alabama's attorney general would do this. Oh my gosh! Probably the so, complete opposite. Yep. Yeah, he he has not. And this is not a, a soapbox time, but he has not been um, pro Alabamian. Let me put it that way uh, toward the the average man or average woman in our state. And in, in COVID aside, I mean, while they've improved over time, you know, I, I have, as I'm sure you guys have, a large number of Amazon employees as clients. And, you know, the, the tales they tell and, you know, 
particularly with the repetitive trauma injuries and, and yeah. those types of things. It's, you know, it, it, it's not an ideal working environment on a good day. And then you throw COVID into the middle of it. I mean, you know, yeah. really some, it was a recipe for disaster. Well, you know, Jim, with all the automated process and machinery they now use, the injuries are becoming more serious. Right. It goes, it goes well beyond the traditional repetitive motion injuries. People are getting run over by machines. They're getting yeah. smashed. Yeah. And we've got, they're currently building a distribution, an Amazon distribution center. What, David, two miles, three miles from our office? On one hand, I'm thrilled that it's going to be so close. I can get stuff delivered to me within hours. On the other hand, we may end up with more claims as a result of, of this building being built. Yep. And, and, and it's man trying to keep up with machine. Mm -hmm. And yep. got to be realistic. Right. And unfortunately, it's push, push, push. And there's such a great demand for the products that they, that they supply. Well, guys, we've run through our articles for the month. And before we get out of here and finish up, work comp today. Uh, I want to ask you guys to, to kind of look into the crystal ball. It is almost March of 2021. Uh, many people that, that are close to me are targeting July 4th. That's when the world's going to reopen. I, that, you know, that's, there's no scientific reason. It's just a, a great day for, to, to proclaim that the world will now be safe again. I don't know if it will or not, but here's my question to you both. And, and Jim, I want you to go first. We've seen a spike in the claims for COVID through the work comp system have largely replaced a lot of the traditional work comp claims just because people weren't working nearly as much. And here's my question. When do you think that those traditional cases are gonna be back up on the rise? Uh, and I'm not, I'm not asking about the COVID cases, but the traditional cases, the, the bone, you know, the broken bones and the backs and the uh, repetitive motion type of claims, when are those going to unfortunately come back on the rise and level off to traditional levels again? Well, up here, from my perspective, they've, they've really kind of bounced back. Um, they, they started bouncing back probably in August, and they've been on the rise since that time. Um, we're largely reopened up here um, in terms of manufacturing and the general types of industry where my clients come from. The, the COVID cases that we've got have basically dwindled to zero. So, you know, in my practice anyways, um, we're back to basically seeing the things that we saw before March, which from my perspective is, I, I like handling those cases a lot better. There's a lot more certainty in them. And um, you know, hopefully going forward, that's only gonna continue. You know, it's interesting because I'm sure the way that your state has handled uh, shutting down the state and then opening it back up again is very different than yeah. our experience. Dave, what, what are you seeing in your practice or what are we seeing yeah. uh, in, in the types of cases? While we're in different states, uh, in a different state than Jim and we're, we're thousands of miles away, I, I would say that in my experience is very similar to what Jim said. Um, in that we are seeing, uh, uh, you know, broken bones and, and hurt backs from accidents that are occurring this month and last month in December, uh, because uh, you know, as as a, as a lawyer, I think back in, in 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 March and April, we were very concerned that if people aren't working, well, they're not getting hurt, and not that we wish that upon people, but 
people work, they're going to get hurt. And so we were concerned about if people aren't working, what's, what are we going to do as lawyers? But, but I agree with Jim and that people are back working um, and they're unfortunately getting hurt. Um, there was a, a, a dip for a while in that people weren't going to their traditional workplace. They're working remotely and still a lot of people work remotely. So there will be a drop in the number of accidents that occur at work as a result. But we're staying busy with people getting hurt at work. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we're, we're not a particularly industrialized state. So, you know, a lot of the comp claims that we see aren't coming so much from heavy industry. But, you know, we do have Pratt & Whitney up here. We do have Amazon. Um, there's a number of warehousing companies that we get a lot of claims from, and those things have been, been very consistent. A lot, interesting, a lot of those stayed open for the duration anyway. So what, once we got over the initial cold water shock of the whole thing, by virtue of the fact that those guys were still going into work and those ladies, the claims started coming again once people felt it was safe to venture out and talk to a lawyer again. Yeah, Jim, we have a lot of automobile manufacturers around the state and the, the subsequent or not subsequent, but the, the sister companies that feed to them or have contracts. So those are largely coming back in full force. But I seem and I don't I think David routes these to me. I have the single digit finger cases. I am the probably largest uh, practitioner in our state of single digit finger cases, maybe in the history of work comp law. Uh, in Alabama. So I'm just putting that out there for now. So I'm back, baby. <laughs> hey, if you want to up your game, you can start sending him the dental claims. <laughs> That's right. I used to love those in my defense days. One tooth out. Those are great cases. Oh, I've got one now that's three years old, but we'll, we'll <laughs> save that for another day. But Jim, thank you so much for spending time on our monthly work comp today show. It, it's my pleasure. I'm always happy to talk workers comp. Yeah, it's, uh, it's something that we, we passionately do. And we know that you do is as well. And we try to do these, like I said, the third, the fourth, or the fifth, uh, Thursday of each month. They seem to roll around much quicker each month. I guess time flies when you're when you're having some fun. But, but thank you again, Jim. We appreciate your time today. And we hope that you stay safe and warm and things get back to some normalcy for you. My pleasure. You too, guys. Well, guys, this is it for this month's episode. Dave, you got any other closing words of wisdom? Uh, we come back on what March 18th for work comp today. Do you know who our guest is then? Uh, yes, Michael J. Jordan. Okay, very good. From South Carolina, right? That's right. Yeah. The other Michael Jordan. That's, That's right. right. The other Michael Jordan from South Carolina. Very good. But Jim, it's good to see you. Please tell people how they can reach you. Yeah, we're in uh, Farmington, Connecticut. We cover the entire state. Uh, our phone number is 860 523-8783. You can find us online at CT Work Comp or sorry, CT Work Injury Lawyer.com.